Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Golf Week Raider podcast. This is Thomas Dunn. Throughout the year, we regularly receive inquiries for Golf Week Raiders on subjects that run the gamut of the Raider experience, from etiquette to the nuts and bolts of course evaluation. In this podcast, Jay Blasey, David Normoyle, and I approach some of those questions in what I guess you might call a mailbag format. Our conversation skips around a bit, but we think it contains useful information for new and veteran Raiders alike. I'm looking forward to doing more of these in the future. Hope you enjoy it. So uh, without further ado, um, I should say that David helpfully sorted the questions into various bins, ranging from uh, Raider access and behavior to Golf Week's rating method to differences between classic and modern courses, retreats. We're going to cover a lot of ground. First question was one for David. It's from um, Jack Zarant. Jack asks, what is the best and proper way to approach a golf course to play as a Golf Week Raider? Well, the good news is there are a variety of resources. Uh, and I think the answer to most of these questions is always, did you read the handbook first? <laughs> because a lot of ground is covered in the handbook and addresses most of these things. But we all learn in different ways and we all have different experiences. So that's absolutely fine. But the, the thing that I would say uh, in answer to Jack's question is, in our Raider newsletter, Tom uh, put together a really great interview, a Q&A with Tom Farrell from... Uh, Colorado Golf Club in Parker, Colorado, who's also a golf league grader, and has experienced things on both sides of the fence because he's the membership and marketing director at the club. And he talked about this very issue, and he said that the first thing that raiders need to be aware of is what kind of facility they're going to. Is it a public resort or a private club? There's just sort of different cultures depending on where you're going. And the second is when you call, don't say who's your director of golf, you should do your homework first. Find out the name of the person who you are trying to contact and then indicate that you're glad to to do whatever they need and you are not trying to insert yourself at busy times and that you're prepared to take a caddy or even real good care of the caddy, as Tom said. Um, It's important that when you step on the property, either at a private club or a resort, you're kind of an unknown quantity. And the fact that you're representing Golf Week is really important. So getting all the little details right uh, is essential if we're going to continue to maintain the standing that we have in the game. Uh, next question is one for Jay. It's from uh, Larry Cohen. Larry asked a pretty broad question, but I think it's one that, well, we did get variations on themes, several readers asking variants of the same question, and this uh, this one is, uh, Larry would like more definition in how to rate the courses. So, Jay, what, uh, what do you think? Well, uh, I think uh, I'll pull a page out of David's playbook and say that uh, one good reference, uh, there's a couple of different references to, to pay attention to. One, the handbook does a good job of walking you through the different categories, which I'm assuming each of the writers has familiarized themselves with, but there's still often questions about those categories, and we talk about those at a number of retreats. So attending a retreat is a good way to learn more about some of those things. I also wrote an article for one of the newsletters a little while back in which we talked about not only the the categories that we utilize, but also things that that might influence us that probably shouldn't. So one way that I look at rating courses is before I sit down to rate a course after having visited it is to think about all the things that could influence me that probably should. So maybe even just jotting down what the weather was like, how well I played, who I played with. Did I have a great time because of my playing partners? How fancy was the clubhouse? How good was the meal? What was the history of the course? Had it hosted a bunch of, 
fancy tournaments and all things like that. So all of those things are things that could kind of bias up, serve as some form of a bias. And then when it's time to actually sit down and, and rate the course, we want to use the different criteria. So, for example, uh, looking at green complexes, I look at a lot of different things as to uh, when I'm playing the round of golf, I'm trying to study the green complex, look at the the size of the green, the shape of the green, the slope. If you move the, the whole location, would it change the strategy of the hole? If I miss the green, would there be different types of recovery shots, or am I always forced to hit the same type of recovery? So there's lots of different ways to, to look at things, but I would encourage everybody to take some time on the front end, uh, maybe before you go play, to study the course, look at the, maybe go find it on Google Earth, and you can get a sense for how much variety there is in the way that the holes move and things like that. And then while you're playing the course, uh, you know, while your playing partners are putting out or whatever, take a step to the side and try to try to study the green complex and some of those things we talked about. Um, and then when you're done playing, sit down and take your time and think about those things in each of the different categories and, and try to form your opinions. And it's okay to talk to others too. To you know, it's always fun to have discussion about strengths and weaknesses and things like that. So uh, you guys might have some some tips or keys. I think uh, one of the retreats, David had some help that he uses when he rates courses as well. Sure. I, one of the things that I think about is how to use all the numbers to our advantage. We've got a variety of different classifications within the rating system, and each of those get 10 points. So how can that give as much insight as possible? One of the questions that we got was from uh, a rater who said that his sponsor rarely gave a higher rating than a six. So what does that mean? Would a five be average? And the way I think about it is rather than getting into the individual numbers themselves, I think about it in bigger groups. So 10, that's perfection in any individual category. That means that this green or this bunker or this routing is one of the best examples of the world. And that my education as a golfer is incomplete until I've seen this thing. So that's 10. So that's perfect. Set that aside. Then we've got nine numbers to work with. And I think it's a lot easier to kind of group them. And I always go back to my childhood education. I think about being able to distinguish between a plus, a check, or a minus. And I think everybody kind of understands what that means. So that means that anything in that kind of nine, eight, seven category, that's a plus. So that's a, that's a feature that should be admired and copied. It's, it's something that moves the game forward and it adds to the playing experience for everybody. So that's a, a good thing. And then that, that middle group of numbers of six, five, and four, that's kind of a, a check. And that means that it, it doesn't really harm the game, but nor does it really advance it. It's, it's unobjectionable, but not necessarily noteworthy. It's fine. It's nice. It's, it's, it does what it's set out to do. And then those, those bottom three numbers, three, two, and one, these are, these are kind of the minuses. These are the features that, that really hold the game back. They, they keep it from being appealing for a variety of different golfers. And these are things that they might be sort of poorly conceived or poorly maintained or they're just there to be avoided. And, and that's how I go through the process is I, I take a look at all the categories and I think, well, is it perfect? Is it a plus, a check, or a minus? And then I kind of work it all together, and that's how I eventually get to my own personal rating. Well, that's a good segue into uh, another methodological question, uh, which comes from Steve Hubina. Steve asks, should we treat all rating categories equally? He says, I personally don't put as much value on basic conditioning as I do routing. Is it okay to value certain categories more than others when submitting a rating? Uh, and the answer to that is, is emphatically yes. That is one of the beauties of the Golf Week rating system, I think. You have an overall score, but it is not a cumulative score. The other categories are really intended to, I think, help you reach that overall score. But, you know, I think that one of the great things about being a raider is when you start doing it for a little while, you do begin to realize that there are certain aspects of golf and golf architecture 
that appeal to you more as an individual. There are certain categories that when you sit down and put a score into the system that uh, resonate more with you. I happen to be very much with Steve Hubina. I, I think a lot more about routing than I do about basic conditioning. Um, this is not to say that that conditioning isn't a valuable category. I, you know, I think it very much needs to be part of our our rating uh, paradigm. But I think that when I am thinking about overall scores, certain categories like routing are weighted a little bit more heavily than others. And for other raters, that may not be the case. To piggyback on that, yeah. Tom, I would just say that when you, as a raider, when you fill out your ratings and you, you get to the bottom and, and it's, it's very easy to just plug in numbers and, and submit a rating. But our hope is that you'll actually share your thoughts in the comments section. And that's a great place to help illustrate maybe what was more important to you. If you, if you give a course a certain rating and you say, um, you know, I just thought this routing was really, really brilliant and, and routing is most important to me, that, that helps us understand how you got to the, the number that you got to. So using that comment section as a way to describe how you felt about the course and certain uh, features of it uh, can be a, a valuable tool for all of us. Yes. We had a question from uh, new raider Lou Noskesi about the Raider Handbook. He asked, uh, are there any guidelines as to how long the written part of a course review should be? Lou, I mean, a couple paragraphs is fine. A couple sentences is fine. We we like to sort of get inside the mind of the Raiders. We love Raiders use the comment box. Some do, others don't. I know that when, when I'm going through ratings and I click on a course that I haven't played and maybe I, I know the Raider or have met the Raider before, it gives me a little bit of insight into uh, how that Raider's mind works. I think it's valuable if you think about, you know, let's say you give a, a course a, a six and a bunch of your category numbers are around a six, and then you've got something that sure seems to be an outlier. Maybe you have a, a three, a two or a three in there. If you don't put anything in the comments box, we may wonder if you accidentally hit the wrong button for one of those. Whereas uh, if you certainly meant to give a certain category a two or a three, that's a great opportunity in the comments section to outline why, <laughs> you know, walk us through it. You know, maybe if it was a routing thing, maybe if there was a safety concern somewhere or something like that. Uh, um, but using, using the comments uh, as a way to uh, help, uh, better describe any potential quote outliers in, in your in your reviews is very helpful. So here's a good question uh, for David that that we filed under the relativity in ratings. Um, something that I, I know comes up a lot in in conversation at retreats. Uh, and this one was for uh, David from Bob Langer. Bob wrote, having had the opportunity to play a wide range of courses around the world. How heavily should we let that influence our thoughts about the specific course we're playing and rating? For me, everything is always a comparison against what I've experienced elsewhere and how the course I'm playing stacks up. And I would say that's absolutely natural. I mean, how are we going to uh, remove our own personal experience when it's all we ever know? The question I would ask when you're trying to understand the relativity between your personal experiences and what you're seeing in front of you is ask yourself, what is the objective of the course? What kind of course is it? Is it a private course? Is it a public course? Is it a resort course? Who's the audience? Who is intended to be the ones playing this course on a regular basis? Are you a one-time visitor and a raider? Are you the intended audience? If so, well, then absolutely your personal opinion is appropriate. However, if this is a club or a course or a resort that's achieving its purpose for members or customers who are very, very happy and might not be you, well, then think about whether they're, they're doing what they set out to achieve. And I think if you can look at it slightly more objectively in that way, you could say, this is what they're trying to do. Have they done it well? And as a consequence, is that something that's worthy of being included Golf best. Right. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I would add to that is 
what we've seen is that newer raiders have a tendency to overrate courses and and new raiders enter the enter the golf week rating program with varying degrees of travel experience some people come in really well traveled have seen some scores of the US or world top 100 and others are more modestly well traveled but uh, we do see a lot of overrating you know i'm wondering if david or you or jay would have any comments on how new raiders can can take their experience and kind of leaven that with what we're trying to do, providing accurate scores with Golf Week. Yeah, it's a good point, Tom. I think there's a couple of ways that you can uh, try to try to make sure that you're giving a, a rating that, that we think is going to be uh, as accurate as possible. So number one, for those who maybe haven't been as well-traveled, one thing you may want to do is do your rating for for a course, but but maybe wait to submit it. Uh, and if you have the chance over the course of the year to play a number of other places or see a number of other facilities that that might expose you to a lot more, that may help you with some of your earlier ratings as you've been exposed to more. Um, so that that could be one way to do it. The other thing to think about might be to just talk about. It. Talk with some others. You know, if you've if you're uh, if you've made some friends within the Raider program, or you uh, have obviously we have our ambassadors, so you may want to reach out to your ambassador in your region and say, "Hey, I, I just played this course in this region. Here's my rating. Do you have ten minutes to talk about it? And have you have you been there and 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 whatnot? So those are those are a couple of tools that you may be able to to use. Uh, Tom, David, you may have some others as well. Yeah, I, I would just encourage, as part of an overall commitment to education, uh, get your hands on the World Atlas of Golf. You can go online to various used bookstores, and it's available for less than a dollar with shipping. I mean, it's super accessible. And it's not the most modern hot take. It's not on the Internet. It's not on Instagram. But it's a collection of the best writers throughout the 20th century and beyond talking about the best golf courses and what makes them great. And perhaps by reading about these courses and how these great writers describe the particular virtues uh, of these courses, even though you yourself might not have been there, they're giving you a kind of vocabulary so that you can explain what your eyes are seeing when you see a great course for the first time or when you're playing something that's not quite great. And so even though you haven't seen the great courses of the world with your own eyes, you can use the experience of these great writers talking about these classic courses to try and create some context. David, that's a great segue into another question uh, from Joey Lewis. What are some good books and resources that we can read to better improve our knowledge of, of course architecture? Again, that's something that is is in the handbook, though it's by no means an exhaustive list. David and Jay, I mean, what are you know what are your favorite uh, what would be your number one recommendation or a couple recommendations for uh, for books that can you know help help new raiders get up to speed? Well, I think one of the things you've heard from us so far today, and I think the questions illustrate this, and, and we'll probably kind of keep touching on this theme, is that uh, we have a wide variety of raiders. They have a, a, each of them come with a very different background, and as individuals, we all kind of learn differently. Right, and so some are left brain, some are right brain. So what's going to really resonate for one person might be a little bit different than some others. So you touched upon the fact that we have a list of maybe a dozen or so good books in in the um, in the handbook. Uh, I look at certain books, The Anatomy of a Golf Course by Tom Doak is very helpful, and, and then there are some other books that are maybe maybe have less diagrams and drawings and and get a little bit less technical but are more could be a little bit more romantic things like that spirit of saint andrews things like that my former boss robert trent jones jr wrote a book called golf by design which is a very easy read and lots of pictures and so easy to follow that way i'm sure you guys have a number of others that um that could be helpful for different types of people yeah, I think the Cornish and, Whit- Cornish and Whitten duo of mm-hmm. both the golf course and the architects of golf is a cornerstone uh, for education. Yep. And on the other side of the pond, uh, I'm 
very, very fond on that sort of more romantic narrative side of things of Patrick Dickinson's book, A Round of Golf Courses. Mm -hmm. He picks 18 courses, not necessarily the best, but merely his favorite. And I think what that does is it gives you, as a, a, a golfer and a raider and a player and a thinker, it gives you a kind of license to say, what do I actually like? What's my taste? What would be my favorite 18 courses? Because they don't necessarily have to be everybody else's favorite 18 either. Yeah, a couple I'd mention uh, that I think are really good primers, one old, one new. The older one is Jeff Shackelford's Grounds for Golf. I think it, it has some really good hole plans that were actually drawn by Gil Hans. number of courses, famous holes uh, around the world that are covered in Jeff's book. And then uh, a new book came out, I believe, last year, uh, which is uh, The Evolution of Golf Course Design by Keith Cutton and published by Paul Daly in Australia. Um, Paul Daly... Uh, has been doing a long, long-running golf architecture series. He published Keith's book, and it's similar to the the golf architecture, other golf architecture books, but uh, really good overviews of tons of different architects. Really nice design, beautiful photography of stuff like Mackenzie's Sitwell Park Green, and you know, chocolate drop mounds. You can really sink your teeth into it. And it's just some, some stunning photography. I think it's a valuable addition to a Raiders library, you know, just from a, from kind of a one-on-one level, a lot covers a lot of ground. So what next, what should we, what should we cover next? Well, one thing we, we, we wanted to uh, get into the categories a little bit. And I know Jay was especially interested in talking about a few of the categories. Uh, so let's, let's take this one from Ethan Zimmon. Ethan wrote, I'd appreciate uh, learning what more experienced Raiders do when raiding a modern course that was built on an otherwise unremarkable piece of land, knowing that everything you see is artificial from dunes to ponds, all the surrounding areas on the course. And he's really asking about the category of quality of feature shaping. So and I think, Jay, you wanted to feel that one, right? Sure. You know, so when you think about shaping, um, there's lot, lots of different things to look at. Uh, and I think that David touched upon this earlier, which is really important, is one of the things you want to want to do uh, maybe ahead of time or, or to think about broadly to begin with is what, what was the goal of the golf course or what is the theme of the golf course? Uh, is it public or private? Is it intended to be a championship golf course or is it built for fun? What What's the setting? Is it a seaside golf course that's trying to be a... Uh, a Lynx golf course, or is it more of a Parkland setting? So having an understanding of of the goal or the theme of the golf course and the setting, I think, is important. Then I, I personally look for consistency, and that comes in a couple different ways. You want to look, uh, is the shaping consistent throughout the, throughout the golf course, from hole to hole, feature to feature, and is it consistent with what the theme or the goal of the golf course is. How well does the shaping kind of match what what they were going for? This uh, obviously we're talking about modern courses here, but that could also apply to uh, classic golf courses, especially if they've been restored. You know, you can get a sense for how well they connect back to what was once there. And then I, I take a close look at at the real details of the shaping in terms of how well do the features work together and in conjunction with each other. So uh, if you think about a green complex, in the area around the green, you're going to have the green surface itself, but you might have some bunkers, you'll have some fairway, you might have some rough, and there might be uh, you know, a creek or, or some other feature. And one thing that I'm looking for is how well do those things work with each other? How seamless do they transition from one to another? And so to me, um, a real uh, a real positive is, is when something feels like it, it was created as one, that they all work well together. Uh, and oftentimes when they feel kind of handcrafted, uh, if you look at many golf courses, especially when we refer to modern times as kind of the 80s and 90s, there are many, many golf courses where it's pretty easy to see that the green was shaped and the bunker was shaped, but they weren't shaped together, and they don't really connect well together. Um, and so those are the things that you can tell that they were created by big machines, 
but they weren't necessarily handcrafted and that there isn't much connection from one to the other. And that not only impacts the aesthetics, but it also impacts the, the play. Um, so those are those are some of the things that I think about when, when looking at shaping. Uh, you guys may have some additional comments or thoughts as well. Yeah, it's funny, Jay. I mean, I agree with everything you said, though. You know, I think it's good to try to do some research into when it comes to classic courses into what the intent was. I mean, when you talked about greens and greenside bunkers sort of functioning as a a unified whole, um, I mean, that's absolutely true. And yet the course that jumped to mind was actually um, Sea Island Seaside course, an old, old Allison course that that uh, Tom Fazio renovated a while back. And at the orig- original Seaside, on many holes, the bunkers were actually broken off from the greens. Um, the idea was that you'd fly it and then, you know, bounce and run it on. And that when Fazio, you know, um, altered the course, he actually brought those green bunkers in and connected them to the greens. Well, and to your point there, Tom, uh, I think you, you, you bring up something very important. And when I talk about how well the greens and the bunkers interact with each other, it isn't necessarily that they are adjacent to each other, right. uh, as you pointed out. It's, it's how well is the, the craftsmanship working uh, in terms of uh, the construction, the shaping of the bunker to the shaping of the maybe it was fairway between the bunker and the green uh, as originally laid out. What is that transition like from the top of the bunker to the fairway to the green, right? How how did that work originally? And then to your point, how was that altered? Right? Yeah. Uh, so it's not necessarily how close they are in proximity. It's how well do the transitions work from one feature to another? Exactly. Uh, so continuing on, on the, the question of routing, uh, this was a good one for David uh, from Tim Powers. And Tim wrote, in Ohio, he's, I guess he's from Ohio, uh, playing inner city Donald Ross courses like Miami Valley Country Club or Springfield Country Club, the only thing between a green and the next tee box is a 100-year-old oak tree. Then you go to the club at Tartan Fields in Dublin, Ohio, which is a newer Arnold Palmer design on a sprawling piece of property with gorgeous homes throughout. It's almost like apples and oranges. The nature of the beast of some newer developments lends itself that the routing isn't as convenient as the old school courses. Does the new design get penalized for this newer model of success? Very good question. Um, I think you're using the eye of the beholder, absolutely. But when we talk about routing, whether it's on uh, an old Donald Ross course or a newer Arnold Palmer course in a housing development, or we talk about a nine-hole course uh, that Tim also mentioned, Weekapog in Rhode Island, uh, and the intimacy of that, I think one of the ways that trying to understand routing for me uh, is to think of routing being a bit like a tailor and clothes. So when you look at people, they all have different body shapes and body sizes. And sometimes an off-the-rack choice works well for a lot of different people, and sometimes it doesn't. But a good tailor figures out how to make the clothes that somebody is wearing look good no matter what their body shape might be. So we all know when somebody's wearing clothes that don't fit. They're too loose, they're too tight, whatever. Sometimes that's the tailor's fault. Sometimes it's the buyer's fault. Sometimes it's a combination of both. But what great routing is, and Jay talked about this before, and the connection of things, it is a perfectly tailored suit. All the corners match up. The lengths are just right. There's no imbalance. It all works together. And so when you take a look at that piece of property, the suit either fits or it doesn't. And the best courses, the one that deserve higher rankings, they fit their property and their routing. And the holes, the individual shots that are offered, they're the best option you have no matter how you want through the golf course. And so I think whether it's a classical golf course or it's a modern sprawling design or it's an intimate nine-hole course, the question is, does the suit fit when you look at the land and the choices and the objective and the purpose of the golf course? I think that's really well put, David. And and to, to Tim's point about does it get penalized, uh, you know, as you've answered, it doesn't necessarily have to, right? It could be could be a great routing, even though there's a housing development 
Lost the tempo is an example, right? Exactly. Yeah, or Harbor Town. That's that's where the opportunity to utilize some of the other categories. So uh, the overall land plan, right, is is a category that many people may not have a great sense for, but that's one that that I look at often. And maybe the routing does a very good job, but the fact that it is a housing development uh, and and how how it was set up maybe that takes away from the overall experience and, and maybe you're not downgrading in routing, but you, you, you may choose to in the overall land plan. So that's, that's where having a, an understanding of all the different categories can be helpful. Yeah. I, I think that we as golfers feel it on some level when a land plan has not put golf front and center. When, the way that a property has been utilized uh, has different priorities in mind, whether that be multi-million dollar homes or, you know, a 50,000 square foot clubhouse. You know, I think we feel it. I mean, I, I played a Nicholas course abroad, let's just say where the, the site was um, pretty dramatic property and especially a spectacular clifftop setting. And the developer had chosen to place the clubhouse on the cliff edge. And the impact of that decision, because clubhouses come with parking and other uh, infrastructure demands, was that the clifftop holes, the, the land that was remaining for, cliff, for the best golf property, was really limited to just a pair of par threes running along the cliff edge to actually the the 18th was a par five, but the other was just a cliff top par three. And that was really all that they could do with, you know, some of the most spectacular land that they had, you know, had at hand. And, you know, you look at how a Mike Kaiser would approach a property with a dramatic coastline or cliff edge. He clearly did take a different approach. And there's a great passage in Dream Golf, Steve Goodwin's book about Bandon Dunes, uh, that says that there was a uh, a discussion early, you know, in the creation of Bannon Dunes about perhaps putting the clubhouse on the cliff top, on the cliff edge, kind of where, you know, 16 at Bandon Dunes would be now or, or 13 at Pacific. I forget the, specific, the precise location, but just think about how that decision um, would have influenced the entirety of the land plan and the golf around it. I mean, Bandon Dunes would not be what it is today, you know, if they had maximized views from the rooms in the lodge. I mean, they gave the best land to the golf. So here's a, David, one for you that is, um, I guess, inside baseball question. Uh, adding adding courses to the list, uh, also from Larry Cohen. Uh, he wrote, I'm not finding some of the Florida private community courses that I played earlier this year. Are all courses listed? How do you get courses added to our ballots? Well, the very good news is that specific question is addressed directly in the Razor Handbook. So I'm even going to quote from it. <laughs> so generally speaking, uh, what we say is that a good rule of thumb is to ask yourself, do I feel like the course I'm recommending is better than all the other courses that are currently on the ballot? And would I be doing a service to a fellow Raider, not just for myself, but for everybody else, if I sent them to go play this golf course? If you're convinced that the course is worthy, then you just send an email to Diane Miratori. Uh, you talk about the, the name, the city, the architect, what kind of facility it is. We'll collect those over a period and consider them, whether they should be added or not. So the answer is to send an email to Diane, but make sure first before doing so that you feel like it's the kind of place that you think others should go and see as well. And, and keep in mind also that except for unusual circumstances, so like, you know, for example, the golf course ceases to exist. Ceases to exist. Generally, we're not going to eliminate courses from the ballot because it just gives us uh, the most data and therefore the most context for the ratings that we create. Yeah, I mean that's that's a good answer, David. And uh, you know, I would add that if a reader is really confident that that a course has merit, that you know, that one feels that others can seek it out. It, it doesn't need to be an absolute world beater, but it could, you know, it should be something that 
has some some something to grab onto, whether it be a you know a highly unusual feature, a you know an excellent run of holes in. I mean, we've all played courses where you know there'll be a four hole run of really great stuff, and then it's just what the land offered, but that is you know is still worth seeing uh, for its kind of its highlights because. At the end of the day, I mean, we don't, and this actually transitions to another question, you know, we don't want Raiders list chasing. I mean, we want courses on the list, on the ballot, that are are worth seeing because they can expand our notion of what a great course is by going out and seeing some good courses. And some of the priority courses within the states are courses that are sort of like that. You know, they're, they're no threat for the U.S. Top 100, but nevertheless, they we want people to see them in order to provide more context for Raiders when they when they encounter real greatness. And so, David, that that brings us to another question about kind of the access part of the game. Uh, Eric Sidransk asked, "Are we forbidden from reaching out to top fifty courses? What about during their off season?" So our policy on this is pretty clear. And that is uh, the top 50 courses on each of our best lists have more than enough data and have had ample visits by writers, and they don't need the additional ratings to be statistically valid. So if you want to play these, uh, please do not call up as a golf league writer. That's, that's our policy. The reason why this is true and the reason why we want to make sure that we're spreading uh, golf week graders across as many courses as possible is even though, though our principal goal is to have uh, to establish rankings for the top golf courses from the classic and modern era, we have lots of other courses and it's an important part of what golf week is. It's an important part of what the magazine does and it's an important service that we provide to our readers, uh, to advertisers, to the golf community at large. We've got the best casino courses, the best campus courses, the best in Canada and Caribbean, Mexico, Great Britain, Ireland, top resort courses, public access. All of these courses are an important part of the golf community. And so even though they're not in the top 50, they're absolutely valid and they make a contribution, especially now in challenging times more than ever. So that's, that's part of why we do it is to keep the focus where it belongs. And that is the entire golf community and not just on the top 50 courses, which we already have more than enough ratings for. Yes. And I'd add to that, that just from a standpoint of, you know, the way that the golf week community works, come on a retreat, meet some people. There are, uh, lots of Raiders that are members of really terrific clubs around the country. You know, you never know who you're going to encounter at a retreat. You never know who you're going to be paired up with in that setting. And the the Golf Week Raider program is a is a great place to make new golf buddies. You know, if you're so inclined. And I mean, that becomes a you know a really good way to to see some of the better courses and clubs in the country. Yeah, it's how you take the words out of my mouth. You know, those if you if you look at our list of, of retreats, those are good opportunities if you haven't had the chance to see a top fifty golf course, there's a number of them that are featured in the retreats. And uh and to your point, in addition to being able to to see or play a course like that, uh the added benefit is is the, the opportunity to meet a lot of interesting people and and we try to do a lot of education on each of the retreats as well. So there's really good discussions that take place so if you haven't had the opportunity to go on a retreat that that's a reason to do so absolutely jay you've talked a little bit about greens in this conversation uh i know that raiders ask about how to study greens all the time and this this one was from um rob wittenberger he wrote one of the areas that's been challenging for me is in the green complexes rating category he said greens can be highly variable from course to course. Would it be possible to provide examples of commonly played courses and appropriate ratings for those green complexes and why? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think that many people may get confused with the green complex category, right? It's oftentimes easy uh, for people to assume that super fast and super smooth greens equal great green complexes. And in fact, green complexes are, are more than just the greens, right? We talked about this a little bit earlier. It's, it's, the, it's the surface itself, but it's the stuff that's around it too. It's the 
fairway, rough, bunkers, hollows, uh, could be creeks, whatnot. So some things to think about when, when writing green complex. Is there a variety in the size, the shape, and the slope of the greens, right? If you move the pin position, does that change the strategy? If I miss the green, can I use every club in my bag as a recovery throughout the course? Um, and then maybe one of the best questions to ask is, if I couldn't play the golf course, but I was only allowed to just chip and putt on the greens, would I have a ton of fun, right? And so um, I'll just try to use maybe a couple well-known golf courses as examples. So Beth Page Black, to me, is an example of an absolutely phenomenal great golf course, one of the great golf courses in the country, right? And yet, if you were to really break it down and study what makes it great, I would contend that um, it's got a fantastic routing, there's wonderful variety and strategy throughout, and yet the green complexes aren't necessarily the star of the show. Many of the greens have a very similar uh, slope to them. Uh, They bunkering or the the variety in terms of the the size and the shape and where the hazards are located isn't isn't that great. So there's an example of a course that's super highly thought of, great golf course, and yet on a category-by-category basis, the the green complexes may not get the same score that the routing would get. And, And then if you think about another great golf course, Pasatiepo, David, I think, brought that up earlier as an example of a, a golf course that's part of a housing community, but Pasatiepo, there's an example of green complexes that wide variety in shapes and sizes. You know that if you move the flag, that's going to change the strategy significantly. You're going to hit all kinds of recovery shots, and I would contend that if most people were relegated to spend three hours but they could only chip and pot around those greens you'd be happy and giddy to do so uh i think i know this because each and every chance i get a chance to play uh if there aren't people around whoever i'm playing with we'll finish a hole and then we'll spend five or ten or fifteen minutes chipping and putting trying all sorts of different shots around so those are two two of courses i'm sure there's many others and you guys might want to chime in on some of those i was sort of just going through hole-by-hole hole at Pasatiempo in my mind. <laughs> I was thinking about how much fun I would have on all those greens. I mean, the insanity of the slope on 8, the part 3, or 11, the hardest little 380 yard part 4 in the world, and uh, the little sections of both 15 and 16, which are rock and roll, but very, very different. Um, Pasatiempo has so much. And I actually think, in the context of recent events, it's worth noting that uh, Pasatiempo is important because it was developed by Marion Hollins, who was recently announced as being inducted into the Hall of Fame, the World Hall of Fame for the 2021 class. And that was her, her great passion and joy, and that's where Alistair McKenzie made his home on the sixth hole. And I think it's because of the personal connection with Hollins and McKenzie and so many of these other great courses that we see really special greens. And that's it. They're, they are the faces to everybody's body, which distinguish who we are and, and how familiar we are and how recognizable we are. And I was just, I was so transfixed by thinking about Possum Tampa. I didn't want my mind to wander anywhere else. <laughs> I get it. Well, um, and and the beauty, another beautiful thing about Pasa Tiempo, obviously, is that it is accessible uh, to the public. has a, has a great membership as well. But you know, we can go out and play it. I played it on my thirty eighth birthday, I believe. Uh, but that does bring bring us to another good question, uh, a, a pretty classic new raider question. This is from Carl Ferno uh, for David. Carl wrote, "I understand ratings of seven or higher are reserved for top one hundred courses." I've never played a course like Augusta National or Pine Valley, so what's the best way to benchmark more accessible courses? Excellent question. Again, this is relativity, context, experience, all those things. And that's where, for me, and this may not work for everybody, that's that's where, for me, my 
the way I look at these these numbers, ten is perfect. And then the nine eight seven, that's in something that's that's really additive to golf. Uh, something in the six five four category is perfectly fine. It neither advances the game nor holds it back. And something in the three two one category is something that really is probably detrimental to the game. It's it's not something that is going to encourage people to keep doing it again and again and again. And so when we look at our ratings of 10s, 9s, and 8s overall, according to the Raider Handbook, what that suggests is anything 8 and above is really top 50 classic or top 50 modern. And what that means is that just about everything is an exceptionally high standard. And... If you've never experienced that, it's understandable. It, you wouldn't really know what that's like. It's like uh, being a chef and never having eaten a meal at a great restaurant. It, it really is life-changing and, and life-affirming. And so if you haven't had that experience, I'll go back to a previous point that I made, which is get your hands on the World Atlas Golf, because that's an example of the best writers. Herbert Warren Wynn, Charles Price, Pat Ward-Thomas, Peter Thompson – it's the best writers talking about the best courses, all the name brands that we know. And not just talking about the courses, but talking about how they've been played by great players in great championships and competitions. And so even if you've never set foot on these special places, simply by reading the stories of great writers talking about great courses being played by great players, you get the kind of experience of great chefs talking about great restaurants. And it gives you a vocabulary so that you can understand and maybe have a way of benchmarking that accessible golf course. Great. So I think maybe that we've been, yeah, we're almost at an hour now. Uh, there was one that I wanted to field before we sign off, uh, which was a conditioning question. We touched briefly on conditioning earlier in this talk in relation to how we individually weight categories. This one was from Chris Bowden. He wrote, in Georgia, we can play golf most of the year, but courses are not always in optimal shape depending on what time of year you play there. First, should we avoid rating courses when they are in less than optimal condition? Or if you do rate them, how do you take into account that the course may be wet or brown, etc.? Uh, I see a lot packed into this question. It's an excellent question. I think the first really important thing to know is that as raters, we can update our, our, our ballots, our votes on any given course, uh, as many times as we want. We can replace a previous vote with an up-to-date one. So if you are talking about a course that's in your state, a course that you are inclined to play two or three times a year, then you can file multiple ratings for that. And I think that, I think that that's a good thing to do. Um, however, there's a, a different aspect comes into play when you're talking about destination golf, when you're talking about a course that you're not sure you're going to see it in the next five, 10 or ever again. And then it becomes a, that, then it becomes a more challenging question. And, uh, and I think that one way to approach it is to ask around you know, try to pinpoint uh, the source of any conditioning issues that you may have seen. I, I think I'm thinking of uh, a, a Raider retreat we did in Wales. I think it was three years ago where the UK was in the middle of a hundred year drought, right? And some of the courses that we played, Pennard, Porthcall, some, some clubs handled the drought conditions better than others. Um, the point I'm making is that, you know, was there a highly unusual weather event? I mean, if you were to go and play, you know, at the Greenbrier just after the, you know, it opened from the floods, you know, you'd kind of cut a little bit of, of slack on the conditioning side of things. But, you know, ultimately, because, the you know, we, we really only measure on the overall score, you do have to ask yourself how much it matters to you. How much did uh, the conditioning affect your experience? Um, and that's, you know, that, that is a question that doesn't have a one-size-fits-all answer. So, um, again, I would just say that's a good, that's a good place to, con you know, add context in the comment section. 
Right? Let us know if uh, if you were if you felt the conditioning was a real challenge. What was it about the conditioning? And I think it's also important to keep note of again what was the goal of the golf course. So uh, as a as a raider, you're going to go travel. You're going to see a bunch of different golf courses. And what is ideal conditioning for one golf course might be drastically different than ideal conditioning for another. Uh, you're going to visit places and parkland settings where uh, it's important to, to them to have, for lack of a better term, greener turf, right? Sticker, washer, greener turf. Whereas you might visit other facilities that are uh, seaside or links where having off color, whether it's a brown or tinge of gray or purple, purple turf is actually ideal, right? So having an understanding of the facility that you're at is also important. Absolutely. Uh, so I hope that this hour has been informative to new Raiders and old alike. I've enjoyed this a lot. It definitely seems like something we could uh, do again. Please continue to send your questions, whether you're a new Raider or an experienced one, to Armand and or Diane. We will try to field as many as we can in future podcasts or other formats. Uh, David J. want to thank you for um, taking the time to uh, to do this with me. It was fun. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, David. Always fun to be with you guys. Thanks, guys. We'll talk soon. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.